Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar.com. In this week's podcast, Ultimate Stock Pickers highlights three cheap dividend payers with moats. Christine Benz invites Judith Ward from T. Rowe Price to share highlights from new research on retirement preparedness. Equity analyst Matthew Dolgen shares why CenturyLink is a bargain. Russ Kinnell picks his favorite short-term bond funds for investors looking to reduce risk. And John Hale invites Karen Anderson to discuss new fixed income research on how asset managers are approaching sustainability. Let's get started. First, Ultimate Stock Pickers highlights three cheap dividend payers with moats. Our quarterly series, Ultimate Stock Pickers, culls investment ideas from the most recent transactions of some of our favorite investment managers. While the vast majority of our Ultimate Stock Pickers are not dividend investors, a handful of them focus more heavily on income-producing stocks and their pursuit of investment return. To get to a list of buy ideas, we've screened for stocks with a wide or narrow economic moat and an uncertainty rating of low or medium. One of the stocks that passes the test and is also undervalued according to our measures includes cigarette maker Philip Morris. This stock is currently trading at almost a 30% discount to our fair value estimate of $102, which implies a forward 2020 multiple of 18 times earnings per share and a dividend yield of 5%. Philip Morris has received a lot of negative press recently after announcing that it is in talks to merge back with Altria, which had completely spun off its international tobacco operations during 2008. We think that this potential deal makes a lot of strategic sense. In addition, two large drug manufacturers, Pfizer and Gilead Sciences, make the list. Wide Moat Pfizer is rated five stars and carries a low uncertainty rating. We think that economies of scale, patents, and a powerful distribution network should allow the company to earn an economic profit for years to come. Gilead Sciences has also carved out a wide economic moat and trades in four-star range with a medium uncertainty rating. Patent protection on Gilead's newer HIV regimens and continued dominance in the hepatitis C market will be enough to ensure strong returns for the next couple of decades. We think long-term investors should consider these names. Now, Christine Benz invites Judith Ward from T. Rowe Price to share highlights from new research on retirement preparedness. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. How far behind are women relative to men when it comes to retirement savings? Joining me to share some research on that topic is Judith Ward. She's a senior financial planner for T. Rowe Price. Judy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Judy, you did a survey of people, women, uh, at various life stages, attempting to get your arms around how they approach retirement savings, how they're doing toward retirement preparedness. Um, I think the general takeaway is that women are lagging their male counterparts, but you did examine it by generation. And... Um, Let's start with the baby boomers, because these are people who are entering retirement, in retirement. How are they doing in terms of retirement preparedness? Yeah, so at, at T. Rowe Price, we have a retirement um, saving and spending survey that we do on an annual basis. And we cut that by gender and also, you know, somewhat by generations. Right. And yeah, it, it validates a lot of the research that we've seen out there that women are lagging in terms of income and they're lagging in terms of retirement savings. So the income differential largely explains the, exactly. the savings shortfall. Yes, absolutely. Um, the baby boomer women were the worst off. And honestly, that wasn't unexpected because when you think about, you know, I'm a baby boomer, so when you think about along our careers, you know, most of us have maybe taken time out of the workforce. I know a lot of my friends were stay-at-home moms. Um, maybe we've altered our careers 
for caregiving or, you know, when we've had children. So we, you know, just didn't concentrate as much on the career. So that's really not unexpected. But what I would say is moving into retirement, what women need to be cautious of is the idea of how the household is going to hold up um, while they're in retirement. Another thing we found in this research was that um, if the retirees who had been retired for 11 or more years, 45% of the women were divorced or widowed versus just 17% of men. So that means at some point, um, because statistically women outlive men, right. that they might be um, going solo. And so it's really important to be engaged with the finances and understand what's going to happen um, when one of us, you know, is a surviving spouse and am I going to be okay? And I've always heard that the single retired women, that's one of the most at-risk cohorts, right? right? Yes. Yeah. And there's some things that, you know, you can do. Of course, you can understand what is going to happen with our assets. If you haven't been involved um, in that aspect, um, get involved. Again, you don't have to be an investment guru, but you have to understand what's going to happen. Another thing prior to retirement is the Social Security decisions. Right. Those are really important, especially if you want to maximize a benefit for a surviving spouse. So, so those are some pretty heavy um, areas that can really make a difference um, for women in retirement. And I guess get help would be another absolutely. piece of advice. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So you say when you look at these surveys, the um, boomer data, discouraging but not surprising. One thing that jumped out at you that you thought was a little more surprising was what's going on with millennial right. women. So let's talk about that, that um, here again, you see some of the same patterns, lower incomes relative to right. men, as well as lower retirement savings. Right, and that was a, a bit concerning because you know I spent a lot of time trying to educate people about you know retirement savings and financial wellness, and so it was really discouraging to see that millennial women were lagging in terms of their income and retirement savings compared to their male counterparts. You know, consider they are the largest workforce uh, generation in the workforce now. Um, and some of it has to do, I think, with their um, job choice. They may be going into jobs do pay a decent wage, but might have limited upside potential. What would um, be an example? Well, so an example, we saw the um, social services industry as, like, I think the women were in that industry three to one compared to men. Um, the information technology industry, for example, the men were like two or three to one to women. Mm -hmm. And so some of those industries, they, they have a you know, a pretty good starting salary, but they also have a lot of upside mm -hmm. potential. Mm -hmm. um, so that in the IT space, yeah, in the yeah. IT space or some of these other industries. So, and I'm not going to pass judgment on right. why people choose the the career that they want, but I think it just means that women need to be um, intentional about their saving and their spending, and to make sure that they get on a good track um, to manage the their fi the financial as aspects. One interesting thing we found was that their levels of debt were about the same. I mean, there wasn't, like their student loan debt didn't jump out as being different than their male counterparts. But when they have a lower income, that debt to ratio, that debt to income right. ratio is higher. Um, so, you know, try to manage, you know, manage debt. I, we talk about budgeting. Yeah. Um, that's a framework to help you understand where you're spending your money and incorporating savings goals. You know, the money on the side, I think, is important for women 
to have some flexibility so they maybe could change careers if they choose to. So I think there are some very tactical things that not just women, but anyone really saving for retirement. Um, but you have to be mindful and intentional um, to put those things into action in order to just set yourself up for a good retirement and a good you know, financial financial independence, really. Did you aim to get your arms around how confident or comfortable women are relative to men when it comes to financial decision-making? We didn't ask that specifically, but I do recall a question we asked about, do you know how much you should be saving for retirement? More women than men um, said they do not know. Um, or they answered you know, very low amount. I saw that on the survey, like three, four percent right. in some cases. Right. And so that that tells us there's an opportunity to really reach out to women and make sure they understand, you know, what are some good rules of thumb. It's it's an educational opportunity, um, and that they are they're willing. They want advice. They want people to help them, um, but they need advice that work, fits into their busy lives. Right. And is available when they need it. Um, so, but they're willing. So I think just the fact that they're saying, I don't know, um, they're telling us that they, they want the education and, and they're asking for it. Really interesting research, Judy. Thank you so much for being here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, equity analyst Matthew Dolgen shares why CenturyLink is a bargain. After doing a deeper dive into CenturyLink recently, we feel even more strongly that the market is mispricing its stock. Accelerating sales declines, a large debt load, and fears about another dividend cut may be behind the dismal stock performance over the last year, but those concerns are overblown in our view. We project sales declines to continue throughout the next five years, driven by technological advances and price deflation for firms running legacy telecom networks. But the more important thing is that CenturyLink has continued growing profits and generating significant free cash flow despite those headwinds. We think the firm can continue expanding profit margins and generating about $3 billion in free cash in each of the next five years. With that $3 billion, we expect CenturyLink to maintain the current dividend, which requires only about $1 billion, and to continue paying down debt with most of the rest. Consequently, we believe the firm is in good position to meet all its debt obligations, and we don't think it will have to roll over maturing debt until at least 2022. Although we don't think CenturyLink is protected by a moat, it does own a first-rate global network that the biggest organizations in the world rely on. That network distinguishes CenturyLink from its regional telecom peers that have run into financial difficulties recently. With 75% of its revenue coming from business customers, a network that is critical for global communications, a path to sustain $3 billion in free cash flow annually, and constant improvement in its debt position, CenturyLink should be trading at higher than four times free cash flow, and investors can receive an 8% dividend while the market figures that out. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patek as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Russ Kinnell picks his favorite short-term bond funds for investors looking to reduce risk. 
Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. As markets have turned volatile, many investors have looked to shore up the safe portions of their portfolios. Joining me to share some favorite short-term bond fund picks is Russ Kinnell. He's Morningstar's Director of Manager Research. Russ, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Russ, let's just start by talking about the role that short-term bonds or short-term bond funds might play in a portfolio. How, how would I use them and how would I think about right-sizing that position? Yeah, I think, I think short-term bond funds are very useful, even if unexciting, uh, because they can take that step as the next line of defense after your money market fund. They're going to have a little more yield and a little more return, uh, but also a, a little downside. Uh, a good short-term fund with high credit might lose 30 or 40 basis points in a down year. At least that's the history. So there's a bit of a risk involved, but not a lot, and, and a little more upside. So it's, I think it's a really useful thing. It, you can use it as your next line of defense. If you have, say, some upcoming expenses, you're going to buy a car, you've got kids' tuition bills, anything like that, I think it's a really good uh, place to, to invest. So I think it's a pretty useful tool for just about any portfolio. Okay. You definitely don't want to think of short-term bonds, though, as kind of a tactical parking place. If you are worried about equity market volatility, you shouldn't be flipping things around based on short-term market action, right? No, please don't do that. <laughs> okay. uh, market timing is a very hard thing to do, and, and I, I wouldn't recommend that. Okay. So let's get into some of the funds that you really like in this short-term space. Let's start with a very uh, safe short-term fund, Vanguard short-term federal. I'm guessing low costs would be part of the appeal here. Yep. Low costs, almost no risk. So very, it, it's the next step out from money market in terms of uh, duration. It's all, as the name implies, it's all federal government, uh, mostly mortgages and treasuries. So uh, high quality, uh, it'll get you a, a little more uh, yield than a, than a money market. But again, this is very much at the most conservative end, if that's if that's what you really need. Okay, um, let's take a look at a broader short-term bond fund. Um, this is Fidelity short-term bond. Let's talk about it and its overall complexion. It takes a little bit more credit risk, but generally a pretty guarded profile here too. That's right. So besides mortgages and and treasuries, now you've also got a lot of high-quality investment-grade corporate bonds. So uh, now you still have. Almost all the assets are in AA and AAA, uh, but again, with corporate debt, uh, you've got some more risks. This is a fund that had some issues in 07 and early 08, and they kind of got religion on really being more disciplined about staying dedicated to high quality, and they've been a, a very steady fund ever since. Okay, so it's been a pretty risk-conscious con option. Um, how about for investors who are looking for a little bit of inflation protection along with their, their short-term fund? One fund that you and the team like is uh, Vanguard Short-Term Inflation Protected Index. Let's talk about that. Yeah, this is a really fun great uh, fund. We rate it gold, uh, super cheap, but it's as you mentioned, it's a nice inflation protector because uh, it, it tips give you inflation protection, but because it's short term, uh, it also doesn't give you uh, that interest rate risk that regular tips funds do have. So it, you're even less risky than a regular tips fund. A uh, footnote on that is tips funds really mostly belong uh, in a tax-sheltered account because of the way uh, the taxes are, are figured for uh, tips funds. So probably a good fund for like a a retiree's uh, IRA or, or something like that, where if you're fairly bond-heavy portfolio, 
you might want a little more inflation protection. Okay, great point, Russ. Uh, um, speaking of taxes for investors, taxable accounts, you have another idea that's T. Rowe Price tax-free short intermediate. This is a municipal bond fund. So let's talk about um, first who should look at municipal bonds and then get into the specific attractions of this fund. Sure. Uh, obviously, people with higher uh, in the higher tax brackets are, are most likely to benefit uh, from these from muni funds. You, it's worth running your your own situation through one of the muni calculators that are out there. Uh, but if but if it works for you, and I think munis also provide a little nice diversification. Munis are very rare to default, so so uh, a fund like this, I think, is a really nice diversifier. It's short intermediate, so it's got a little more interest rate risk. Um, it's got a little more credit risk, and then it's got some uh, meaningful exposure to triple uh, B and single A. But we really like T. Rowe. We think they've done a great job here. We did downgrade the fund from gold to silver, not because of concerns about management or strategy, but just because uh, fees have remained kind of high while others have uh, gotten cheaper. So it's kind of only an average fee. Uh, but otherwise, we really like the fund. I think uh, it's a really nice way to... Uh, get some muni exposure without a lot of risk. Okay, Russ, always great to get your perspective. I know our viewers love to hear your picks. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Go from one investment analyst to 150. Sign up today for Morningstar Premium and let our independent and unbiased research staff help you find the best investments. Get started today with Morningstar Premium. And lastly, John Hale invites Karen Anderson to discuss new fixed income research on how asset managers are approaching sustainability. Hi, I'm John Hale, head of sustainable investing research at Morningstar. And with me today is Karen Anderson, a director of manager research and an expert on fixed income strategies. Karen, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, John. Karen, you and your colleagues recently uh, published a report on sustainable fixed income funds. Can mm -hmm. you uh, start us off by just telling us a little bit about the kind of main takeaways that you had from that report? Yeah, of course. Uh, we were very interested to take a, a closer look at this space um, because it's clearly been changing quite a bit in the past few years. Um, there aren't as many sustainable fixed income funds and out there compared to uh, in the equity space, uh, but there's certainly been a lot of development recently. Um, we've heard a lot of larger asset managers are trying to step up their ESG capabilities, you know, some of them making some pretty clear commitments to uh, sustainable fixed income offerings in the next few years. Uh, so we decided to, to speak with, with many of them. I think we did about 12 conversations with mm -hmm. these, these companies to find out exactly how they were going about this. Mm -hmm. You noted a range of approaches in the paper to ESG investing taken by various asset managers. Can you outline some of those for sure. us. Sure. We identified three clear strategies in this space. So those are ESG consideration, ESG focus, and impact investing. So the first one, ESG consideration, is sort of the lightest form of this. Essentially, ESG uh, data is available to portfolio managers who use it as, as they will. So this information doesn't necessarily make or break every investment decision, but they have it at their disposal. Mm. Um, the second form is ESG focus. So this is a higher commitment to ESG investing. So uh, typically we see ESG factors having an impact on security selection on up to overall portfolio construction. So of course, this is a much 
purer form of ESG investing. And there are many styles that fall under that umbrella. Um, it was quite interesting to, to learn about all those, but a lot of them tend to focus on best-in-class companies or, or securities or even countries mm. um, So, and, and, and to, to form up the overall portfolio. Um, the third uh, type is impact investing. So um, a lot of people have heard of green bonds these days. Um, those types of funds typically focus on those to, to a fair extent, but they may also have some sort of a social goal. Um, in the end, impact investing funds are trying to deliver some sort of social or environmental goal alongside a financial return. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, and so the three sort of shake out as like consideration, a little bit of a lighter approach, as you said, with a more comprehensive approach mm -hmm. uh, towards the uh, impact side of things. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you've been in this uh, space a long time as far as fixed income mm -hmm. is concerned as you, were, as you were talking to all these asset managers mm -hmm. about ESG. Was there anything that uh, jumped out at you that was surprising to you? Sure. Um, you know, these conversations were very interesting in that um, many firms are really building up their ESG teams right now. Um, I think everybody wants to to be able to offer any of these types of strategies that, that I outlined. Um, but I think maybe the surprising part uh, is, is just how long the road to standardization will probably be mm. in this space. Um, if, you know, for one, there, there are so many inputs uh, that asset managers are using, mm. um, a variety of third-party data providers. Some are taking that information at face value. Some will manipulate it further. Um, firms are developing quantitative and qualitative frameworks to try to, you know, make sense of all this information um, and then maybe putting their own overlays on this. So, um, you know, as far as being able to make apples to apples comparisons just among this group of um, sustainable fixed income funds, that's actually seems pretty hard at this point. Um, so that's why I think, you know, we're at Morningstar committed to measuring these funds and evaluating these funds against conventional peers for the time being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and certainly um, the, the paper gives folks kind of a primer on mm -hmm. what, what's going on right. uh, among various asset managers in this area. Karen, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. For Morningstar, I'm John Hale. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar.com. We hope you've enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening.